Greetings, true Shakespeareansers. We're here again. And by we, I mean you and I, Morgan Taylor, your host and webmaster of Brainerd. Episode 8 of ShakespeareCon Spotlight, the podcast. It's still National Lulu the Album Month, so we're still going. Did you like parts 1 and 2 of Matt? You should go listen to those first if you haven't. John didn't want to call it a rebuttal episode, but John is here to fill out, to fill the gaps in Matt's memory, the chasms. And John and I talked it through more or less track by track with a lot of interesting side alleys. We don't listen to the songs in their entirety since we did that with Matt so recently, but the music is represented throughout. You'll see. Support this podcast by buying loot or using the donate button on the site. Okay? Okay. Here it is. Me being schooled by the Silver Walrus, John Munson, on this episode of Lulu, The Deep Dive. Side A, The Reprieve, on ShakespeareCon Spotlight. Okay, Morgan, now is the, uh, now are you feeling like you're getting uh, audio yes. but nicer? It's washing over me, your baritone husk. <laughs> it's silky as fuck, dude. I'm having such a shit day today. I'm, I'm oh god, coming out, but it's just like this semisonic cancellation, and yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm I'm comfortable doing this however you want. You know, I I do have some different, slightly different history related to you know, how it, how it came to pass that we ended up recording, you know, where, where we did down there at Pachyderm. And, um, you know, I really enjoyed listening to Matt's commentary on the, on the songs. And I, I did, it did send me back to the record and I, I hadn't listened to Lulu for, I mean, really a long time. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you when the last time I listened to Lulu Right. was i mean i'm i think it it was probably 20 years ago maybe you know i really enjoyed listening to matt talk about i, I listened only to the side a uh podcast that you did with matt mm-hmm. a lot of his comments were were really interesting Kind of a, a working with Matt, uh, artistically speaking, he's a very kind of quite demanding collaborator. Mm-hmm. He has a lot of, um, he knows what he wants. He's kind of willing to be surprised sometimes. You you definitely, you, you, when you're responding to him, you're kind of, res- kind of responding to some demands a little bit. Yeah. Hearing Matt in an attitude of gratitude relative to, his experience of his collaborators in the case of Lulu now with 30 years of distance really made me have like an incredibly warm feeling as I was listening to that. I was just really, I was feeling really grateful for, for him. And, and, uh, he cared so much about that, that, that record. He, I think he, I think in some ways maybe he could have been that he felt that maybe this could be the end of the road. I think we had the two records that were guaranteed. And after that, it was going to be a crapshoot. And the idea was that we were going to make this thing in a very uncompromising way. And there's a lot of 
a, a lot of ways that doing something in an uncompromising way can go. And one of them is that you get dropped from the label. Right. Well, <laughs> you know, Matt talks about his issues with recording across the universe. How, as a bandmate, uh, was it different this time around? Well, he was... <laughs> I mean, that a lot of that stuff was like Matt's internal battle with Matt. You know what I mean? On, on, in some ways. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, um, in terms of like the artistic and collaborative process don't get me wrong this is this could somebody could construe this as negative but you know he he's a he's a pretty he's got a pretty clear vision um you know and he knows what he wants and in the process of like preparing for the making of lulu i mean we knew and especially Matt knew and, and part of the demo making process was Matt educating us, uh, to some extent uh, as to what was going to happen, how this was going to go down. And we demoed the, we demoed those songs really thoroughly. I mean, very, very thoroughly. You know, we had them quite well worked through a number of them we had been performing but not all uh, a lot of them you know really evolved in the demo studio but i mean even to the extent of um you know some people talk about lulu as this kind of a, a bit of a journey from the first to the last song and and those with those little different moments that happen and the way that the songs play against each other that was all preconceived. That wasn't like something that happened on the last day of the session where the sequencing went down. I mean, when we went into the studio, we knew what the first song was going to be and we knew what the last song was going to be. Right. We'd already sequenced the whole record in, in, the, in the demoing process. Okay. So it was very thoroughly thought through. I see. Yeah. I will say, you know, it was a much different experience making making lulu versus across the universe for sure and matt's anxieties were definitely more under control and i think there was you know we were exercising really regularly which i think is was actually really important we had um a basketball court across the down the road from where we were and and uh, when things would start to get kind of intense, Matt and I would go over there and we would just like play basketball against each other really hard for like a, an hour, hour right. and a half. I, th- I think that's really actually pretty important and, and probably played really powerfully in the favor of the kind of mental health of the process of making the record. I think vigorous exercise is like... Uh, is to be recommended because it it kind of it just keeps you uh, balanced. I'm trying to imagine playing one on one with you, <laughs> and you had <laughs> quite a few inches on Matt. How'd that go? <laughs> <laughs> he, you know, he had, he's a super aggressive and and uh, fast, very 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 quick trigger. So it was it was always really a, it was a quite an even contest. I will tell you one funny story though. <laughs> 
<laughs> so we would go over there and we would play one-on-one a lot. It was usually it was usually just Matt and I over at I want to say the the woman uh, down the way her name was Florine and so we played in her driveway and she would come out and watch us sometimes. It was really very sweet. But one day our lawyer brought our A&R guys uh, mm-hmm. down to check in with us. So Steve Rabowski and Patrick Clifford came and they wanted to uh, challenge us to a basketball game. And we were playing like pickup basketball very regularly at this time. We were both super long hair, just like hippie burnout basketball boys. <laughs> These guys showed up and we just brought the hammer down on them. <laughs> relentlessly i don't know if they scored a point you know we were like blocking balls into the woods (laughs) you know dunking on them (laughs) it was really and our lawyer after we after we finished with them said you might consider going a little bit easier on the our guys from the label next time (laughs) oh it was very funny it was like there was no question that we were gonna were gonna uh, not go as hard as we possibly could because that's what we did. <laughs> right, that's hysterical. Okay, I had wanted to read this with Matt, but I didn't get to it. Uh, Shakespeareicon. Allow me to unfurl my scroll. July of ninety one, the Pachyderm Chronicles. <clears throat> All reports from Cannon Falls, Minnesota, indicate that Trip Shakespeare have finished their fourth album and are preparing to release it upon an unsuspecting world. September 3rd is said to be the long-awaited day. The album was recorded at Pachyderm Studios near a trout stream in the forest. Each night, Elaine, John, Dan, and Matt emerged from the studio to the sound of crickets clicking in the woods all around. Trip Shakespeare took with them into the studio co-producer-slash-engineer Justin Kneebank, Chicago native and Shasha lover. No pinball expert, Kneebank twiddled the sound knobs instead, racking up points in the high millions on the various gizmos in the Pachyderm Arcade. Second engineer Dave Kent stood ready with a fire extinguisher as sparks flew from assorted <laughs> control panels. Uh, there's truth in, the, in those words. The band, armed with the familiar arsenal of drums, guitars, and distortion boxes, took their places as though on stage. Roaring into the monstrous riffs of Your Mouth, they tested the limits of the building's foundation. Through the control room glass, Kneebank and Kent could be seen jolting from side to side as though rocked by a volley of photon torpedoes. <laughs> For the recording of Lulu, the band dragged in the enormous cast-iron bell which had graced the backyard of the studio house. It was decided that to achieve the loudest possible tone, mighty John Munson would strike the bell with carpenter's hammers. As the song reached its climax, Munson swung the hammers five times. Four clear and resounding times the bell tolled. Then, on the fifth hammer blow, a terrible clank filled the room. Tapping and hammerings after the fact confirmed all fears. The old bell had been cracked. John hung up his hammers, and the recording continued. What? (laughs) I don't... Did uh, all that effort... Did the bell not even make it on? I think that... was There was a bell. There was a bell. Um... 
but I can't, I, I don't know if it, I don't think it did make it onto the record. I don't, I, that, that's a little detail that I have just the haziest kind of memory of. Now that, that's the sort of thing that Elaine will, will perhaps recall. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know about that, but I can, yeah. I can verify that the console did start on fire. Uh, really? yeah, just there was, it was like then. an, yeah, it was an old rig, you know, and we were, we were the maiden voyage for the studio. It was really cool. It was, um, the guy, these guys, uh, Eric Anderson and Mark Walk and Jim Nickel, um, had this dream that hatched when they were in college together in Madison, I think, to, to, uh, to build a studio out in the country. And they found this property down outside of Cannon Falls. It was a, a really beautifully designed house and office up above this trout trout stream you know on a tributary of the cannon river they installed themselves there in the house and then they built pachyderm from the ground up on a hillside about a hundred yards maybe at the most from the main house and uh, used as their architectural shape the head of an elephant like that that was like that's where the pachyderm name comes from the general shape of the building was like an elephant's skull and i'm sure it has to do with it being a repository for musical memory in some ways a recording of music inside an elephant's head maybe it will have a longer shadow than so some other possible animal skulls that right. you might fashion a building from. I don't know, but I, I, I never really spoke to them too much about what the logic was about that, but that was in their, that was in their thoughts right, right out of the gate. And they were very welcoming and wanted us to be the first people to record there. You know, we kind of did some, we did some experimental recordings down there, deemed the facility to be suitable for the making of a record. And then when it came time to, to make the record, you know, we installed ourselves down there in the house or, you know, also drove back and forth a hell of a lot up highway 52, but, uh, and, and then just hung out there. I asked Matt in the side B, were you just there for an extended period to get it done or was it done in a couple different chunks or, and did you pause your recording to go out and play? I think we did. I think we did play some shows in, uh, in the midst of the process. As I recall, I think we had some, uh, some obligations for some bookings that had been made that we had to, that we had to do. I feel like it was like a, like three or four shows, maybe at like the university or something that would have been booked way out front, you know? Yep. Uh, so you and, had to take your amps out of the, out of their positions. Yeah. Right. Right. But it wasn't, it, I, we didn't have that many amps or anything. It wasn't that complicated, you know? Right. Justin was such a confident, as Matt, as Matt put it, he was just a brilliant facilitator, you know? Mm-hmm. His engineering chops were really large. There was never any question about any sounds, really. He was just capturing what was happening just yeah. very consistently. And so it was never, you know, stuff moved or whatever. It was just like what it didn't matter. We'd just get back after it and it would sound just as good the next time around. 
Well, um, I get we should uh, kind of poke through uh, some of the songs themselves to see what uh, the difference between what John remembers and what Matt remembers. Um, and I, I, I loved do... how you like how you how you kind of like uh, detailed some of like what what the who wrote what and stuff like that with Dan and Matt. It in uh, it yeah it accorded mostly with my memories of who recorded what and his comments about what what Dan brought to the songwriting process mm-hmm. really super accurate and 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 uh, very much corresponds with my memory. Okay, well that's a plus. Um... The intro of the whole record, the first bookend, I guess, none of the regular rules were true. Was this even something that you demoed out ahead of time? You know, I think we did try it, but it came late, real late. Dan in particular was really obsessed with um, the song Because by the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like in some ways that was a, a kind of a model for that. And and I know it doesn't sound like it particularly, but that kind of quite acapella-ish sound. We 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 learned that Dan, Jake, and I learned all those parts and would sing that together. Um, that because by the Beatles all the time. And I wonder. I I kind of wonder if Dan, Matt, and I did the same thing. It may have kind of started before Semisonic and have been kind of like tail end of uh, Trip Shakespeare where we started doing that. Do you remember, did you guys record that all together? Yeah. Intro? Yeah. None of the regular rules were true. That was part of, a, part of Dan's uh, interest in that, as I recall, was the thing that the Beatles did, you know, where they recorded the, they recorded it um, because multiple times around the same microphone. And I think we may have tried that too. That's one thing that is hardly ever done, and I've noticed in Trip Shakespeare music, there's never, hardly ever, a double-tracked lead vocal anywhere. Yeah, I guess, I mean, um, um, one of our first kind of like uh, band experiences of going out and doing like a professional recording, we got called out to New York to record on Matthew Sweet's record, Earth. Do you know that record? No, but I I knew Matthew Sweet was sort of involved in the early days. Oh, he was he was very helpful. He introduced us to Steve or introduced Steve Rabowski to our music. Matthew was like, "You need to see this band trip Shakespeare," and he got Steve Rabowski kind of interested in us. And one of the first expressions of that was when Dan, Matt, and I were flown out to New York to sing background vocals on on this record earth by matthew sweet in the process of doing that we got we met leia kunkel russ kunkel's ex-wife who is like the super background singer to the stars she like was on carol king records so leia was on the session with us as a background singer and then matt dan and i and we would do the background vocals and dave allen was the guy who produced that session and he when we finished um, when we thought we'd finished, he'd say, track it, his English guy, track it. And then we'd double it, and yeah. he'd go like, track it. And then we'd triple it. And each time we did that, to our ears, it became flattened and less filled with the, our wonderful, <laughs> in our minds, <laughs> personality. Right, right. Yeah. you know and uh and so i think actually in that in that session we kind of became um 
we kind of like doubling sucks it sucks it sucks life out of a vocal it makes it less uh personality filled and i I think it was in the process of doing that even though at the end of those each time we you know we'd finish our tripling or whatever of our vocal dave would go like brilliant (laughs) (laughs) so we go straight into the opening number here lulu and you get the lead vocal and I notice if you look back on the albums, when the four of you first recorded an album together, are you experienced? Matt has the first vocal. Next one, Dan has a lead vocal. Next one, John has a lead vocal. First song. How funny. I don't know if that was conscious. Like, let's give each of, each of the singers a turn at the first song. I'm sure that was not conscious. I'd yeah. be very surprised if that were conscious. I don't, you know, one, I will say one thing that we did not know going into the record was what it was going to be called. We didn't know it was going to be called Lulu. Um, And I don't even know if it was like, um, you know, when that song was first introduced, it was, uh, it was called Lonely When I Hear the Band. Okay. Um, Which obviously makes a lot more sense. Yes. In every way. I never even what what is lulu well it's a woman's name but it's also like oh boy this is the one that really broke my heart it it, yes i think that's the it's that and i think for us at the time it was like this is the one this is the record this is us this is who we are we did this this is our moby dick or our or whatever you know it's like and and then we just attached that to the name of that uh, uh, to the name of the song although it does kind of harken back to like the groove of to serve with love a little bit boom 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 right 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 boom, boom. those school girl days And then the artist, of course, of that song, To Serve With Love, is Lulu. So there's like a a multi-elbowed linkage there. Um, So at the end of the song, maybe this is where the bell came in. After you strike the final chord, Elaine does that. Like on the toms, and maybe that's where the bell happened. That you, somebody is going to know the answer to that. I I forgot about that. I haven't I haven't looked at those old Shakespeare accounts. I really should go go sift through those things one of these days. I got to tell you, it's the it's the Shakespeare accounts that created the mystique. I mean, obviously seeing the band was one thing, but then hearing this uh, uh, fabulized version of the of a band's existence created that mystique. Really capture the imagination. My my imagination, I think, for a lot of people too. What it was? Of, do you, Do you know what the origin of the Shakespeare con was? The the newsletter itself. Yeah, I ha- we have the first one on the site. Yeah, Just, no, uh, I know, but you're not gonna. You some some things you're not gonna learn by looking at a piece of paper, Morgan. Did you I know want, that? I am <laughs> I am here to learn, John. <laughs> so, uh, um. When the band was getting started, I was studying 
Chinese. Oh, oh how the, yeah, yes, yes. I, I got an opportunity to go to China um, for the summer before Applehead Man came out. And, um, and so I split and basically Matt made that kind of fanzine as a way to kind of keep interest in the band's activities through yeah. just like making up stuff. It was just kind of a handbill that was distributed around the city in the same places where you'd see like the city pages and the reader and, you know, the local gazette with coupons and stuff in it. There'd sure. be a little stack of Shakespeare accounts. <laughs> and that hysterical. he did it for, there were three issues. Well, I think while I was away in China, and yeah. he just did, he just kind of cranked those out while I was away. And he was sending me mixes of Apple Headman on cassette that I would get in China and listen to. And, and I was oh. getting more and more excited about coming back home and like playing shows and the record coming out and stuff. Yeah. But that's the Shakespeare con definitely it's, you know, we're just kind of starting to be noticed. And right. then we went and then we went away. Yeah. And I think it actually ended up working out really great. Because people were like, what is this all about? And then when we came back and we put out the record and then like played some shows, it's like things happened really fast after that for us. Okay. Well, yeah, the first, I'm uh, looking at the, on the, on tripshakespeare.net, there's a tab that says ShakespeareCon. And the first headline of the first ShakespeareCon newsletter, Munson flees homeland. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Through my archiving work here, I've, it was June of 86 that you split and then you returned like, I think late September is when you had like a homecoming show. Right. And, and then, and then Dan was suddenly in the band. And yeah. That's kind of the rest is, is yeah. 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 That's right. That was weird. This is the Lulu episodes. We're going to do it a full, full Munson, uh, <laughs> throw down. Yeah. Keep me, yeah. Keep me on track. Story. You know, I'm, I, I listened to my previous episode and I was like too many tangents stay right. on track, John. It's not in me to do it though. So don't, I, I would like to warn listeners that no. Well, no, I like it. That. Okay. So Lulu ends and, and it feeds back and it starts, hits right into bachelorette, which as we know was bachelorette was recorded for across the universe, but not used. It the version wasn't quite, up to snuff yet um but you guys have been playing it a while what what do you remember about uh, th that 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 transition of of it uh from bomb 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> matt, matt had just like a very dark take on that that kind of ver i mean i thought i thought it kind of sounded great in its in its way i mean i thought it was very you know it w worked for me you know but he, he he hated the way it, it felt. He did not he did not like the uh, the the version that we recorded out at Paisley Park at, at all. Um, it's funny when you when you spend all that time you 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 record it and you do everything you mix it and then you say nah that's just not it. It's hard not to feel defeat a little defeated. You know what I mean. When we recorded the Pachyderm version, we took we took it all the way. You know, there were a number of songs that we took all the way and mixed and everything, and then we we're just like, nope, we're not going to have that on the record. It does not realize 
you know, what the vision for the song is, you know, for, for whatever reason. When we kind of were getting ready to start working on, uh, you know, songs for the new record, Dan had the idea of turning up the tempo and he he was like, why don't you get, just get it bouncing along a little bit more in the bass, you know? You play it a little bit more like the bass players that you love, like James Jamerson, mm. you know, who I was kind of quite obsessed with at, at that time. Um, and that, and that, that really, that really changed the song a lot. It's, it's very it's almost embarrassingly active you know it's so busy and it's got it's got all sorts of uh, goofy little things in it just like effusive it's very effusive i guess you'd say so there's just all this room for you to waltz your rhinoceros through yeah you know <laughs> i that uh I, I love that song so much that that bachelorette song i mean i thought i i mean I thought it was a hit, you know, whatever. But I, it is funny to listen to some of that stuff because it's just like so. I it, it, here's the thing, Morgan. When I, so I listened to that Matt episode, mm-hmm. and I, I I I was very touched by it. I was very touched by it um, in a lot of ways. But I think um, one of the sad revelations about it was um i i thought to myself i I will never be that happy and confident again in my life Hmm. you know what i mean i think i was absolutely so sure of myself and so happy about what we were doing and the experience of recording the record, it just felt like everything was coming up roses in this amazing way. And uh, and that I have I don't really have feelings like that very often, but yeah. that I really did at listening to that interview and listening to the music. It just sounds like four people who are just in love with what they're doing and they're so happy and confident, you know. I mean, it's right. just it really does. I mean, it's certainly there's longing and 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 it is a very yearny record, you know, looking for something in the past or looking for something that might be out around the corner. But it's 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 just so joyous. I think that's right. the thing that get really gives it its, uh, you know, what staying power it has is derived from that. The distance is what made you feel melancholy. Yeah, I suppose that's right. I suppose that's right because I really don't listen to don't listen to it very often. It's so. It's so joy, goofily joyful. I mean, it's it's like I kind of I I listen to it and it's and it certainly in the contrast of our current moment, um, you know, kind of in if if this is post COVID, kind of a post COVID haze or something like that, it feels so far away right now to me that it is a it's a little melancholy feeling. Mm. You know, maybe we'll yeah. maybe we'll get back to a goofy, joyful time again. I hope, for yeah. our kids' sake. <laughs> yeah, 
And you were I, 20, 20, what? 20. Something. I don't know, probably 27 or something like that. 26, 27, something like yeah. that. It's about right. Yeah. But what, what, what year did it come out? 91. So I was, years I, ago. Exactly. I was, yeah, yeah. Well, I was, I guess I was coming up on, I was coming up on 30 myself. I guess it was probably when we were recording, it was probably 28. Okay. You know, and, um, yeah, I mean, it's so much, so much, uh, was about to change, you know, in a weird way, you know, when you, when you look back at, when you look back at it. But at the time, we were like, we we're touring, our audience was like growing really steadily and people were, seem to be really down for it and uh there's nothing like that to make you feel just like you're you're on track but the wheels were were really i hate to say it but i mean the wheels were really about to really come off the mm. the trip shakespeare wagon how much of it was label related and how much of it was internal uh, well certainly the the certainly the label withdrawing support was um you know a significant challenge you know uh, what point in the lulu tour did the label pull support i don't think they really did it in the midst of the tour i think it kind of ha happened at the tag at the tag end of that you know okay. never mind came out and it just felt like the you know the playing field just changed like in a in a minute you know what right. I mean? The grunge just kind of like completely, we would have had to have like really hung in there to get through yes. that. Well, what it makes me think of is the the whole grunge era and this kind of turning of the guard, I guess, if you will, of this new rock and what it ushered in was a overhaul of radio really and the whole x-rock revolution and you're starting to hear a bunch of interesting stuff in the mid to late 90s like ben folds five like there were oasis was on the radio and odd pop like flaming lips she don't use jelly was on the radio yeah like, trip shakespeare maybe if it was a few years later it, there could have been more it's true we would have had to have we would have had to have uh, hung in there you know but i think for matt I think he felt that the writing was on the wall. The climate had changed and we didn't fit. He, he, I think he felt like looping is the thing now. Nobody is going to accept anything that has any... Um, no, I, I know I see a question on your face, but I, you know... Um, I think that he that like the groove of the band was too flexible and I think he he wanted it to be more strident in a weird way or something and he just felt like I mean this is just my recollections but some of these words definitely were words that were used um and that was that um Matt felt like the group needed to change radically and he felt like the um that there was too much inertia in terms of like where the group was and what the group was had done like the momentum in a certain direction was too great for him to rest control of the destiny of the band 
into mm. the into the direction that he felt that it needed to go as effectively that's kind of was how it was expressed and and what and whether or not that's how he still views it or not at the time that was kind of how he expressed it and i think pretty accurately really it would have taken him a really monumental effort i think for um trip shakespeare to make burnt white and blue for example you know what i mean i just don't think that really was a thing that was likely to happen hmm. yeah well we we kind of this thread came from talking about bachelorette somehow <laughs> no i have no idea um but dude you got actually... it you're gonna have to edit this hard no, i don't want it to... to be a big fat bummer talking about the band breaking up and shit no way no people love this stuff um they want to know so bachelorette I'm sure we can figure out where we how we got here, but it, it actually fits because, all right, we were talking about what can and came out at the same time, and Bachelorette, you guys made a video. Oh and, my god! <laughs> and it's it's as a Trip Shakespeare fan, it's it wouldn't be the first thing I would show someone to turn them on to the band. Oh no, it's terrible. It was, I mean, it we're bit, awful at video making. Not a thing. I didn't quite, I didn't quite get it, and it, it, it I don't think it helped things. But I also think, yeah, it was confusing. It's we, terrible. It's all, I, the I didn't only talk thing, about it with Matt. Yeah, well, I, I mean, there's nothing to really say. You know what I mean? It was not, it wasn't, didn't, re, didn't reflect the band's vision in any significant, in any significant way. I mean, really, to be perfectly honest, the only thing the band should have done in terms of like creating videos was just to record our live performance. Yeah. You know, in some interesting, in some interesting way, and uh, just have that be the video. I mean, that was kind of what what we did live was kind of what was, I, I think, in some ways, kind of most arresting about us. Yeah. And so, to kind of like attach stuff like a cross dresser, and you know, kind of like hanging out in the kind of cabaret room at the gay nineties, it's like. I'm not saying there is anything wrong with that world. It just, but it definitely wasn't our world. It was just like a, a place that, you know, a director from LA kind of walked into and looked at and thought it was funky and thought that yeah. it would look good on camera. And then suddenly there we were doing that. And that's it just, you know? Yeah. It reminded me of like, you take your baby in for one of those professional photographs and they're like, they start handing it stuffed animals and balloons and totally and party hats. Oh my God. <laughs> and the next thing you know, it's like, yeah, that's on, that's on your fridge for the next 20 years. <laughs> that, that was, you know, deeply embarrassing in in some, in some ways, you know what I mean? Right. We're talking about tour support Yeah, and how the, the label saw it as kind of a bust and you know the label tries to put they try to put out singles they put out singles because that's what they do and it's you're still in the age of singles then i mean we still are now of course but you try to break a single through that's just what you do so batch the rat was the was the first single yeah you know your mouth was the next single and 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 i mean your mouth is is really interesting but it's also really just beyond weird you know as a song i mean i love it in its way i don't think i necessarily would have thought of it as a single really and lulu was not chosen which in some ways was i think could have been a could have could have been a single actually in some ways lulu the song 
is more feels representative of Trip Shakespeare than Bachelorette. In Bachelorette, it's just there's not really a chorus, it just goes beep, 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 like a horn blast. <laughs> and that's the chorus, you know. I guess the uh, Scooby Doo, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> oh, um, so okay, your mouth. We talked about some technical stuff with Matt. He was under the impression that you had um, brought in some basement recordings. That's and right. Used did, does that does your memory concur with Matt's on that? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's that's correct. And that some of those editing moves and stuff were uh, really facilitated um by Justin. He had like a, a a pro tools precursor that I think was called Sound Tools and and it or it was like Sound Tools or Sound Designer I think it was just like a stereo uh sound editing program that he would like dump stuff in and out of. He'd dump, take stuff off the two inch tape or make a mix. And then, you know, we'd kind of um, move stuff around within that sound tools system and, and do the editing stuff in there. And he was very open to using the, the demo materials like that. And Dan was a real strong advocate for that. Dan, Dan is always like, what, why would we record it again? We already re- recorded it, and it's what we have we love, and it sounds great. And mm. and not not thinking that, you know, and then there's another mindset is like, yeah, it sounds good, but wouldn't it sound so much better if we did it in the professional studio with the two-inch tape and the nice microphones? And Dan would always be like, no, it wouldn't sound better. It would be it would be different, but we already have a thing that we love. So let's figure out a way to make that thing work. I see. That was, so you, that was Dan's attitude. Your basement recording setup in Matt's basement was a multi-track system. It was an eight track. It was an eight track Tascam half inch system. So and you, you can had, make a really good sounding stuff yeah. in there. So you could have just brought in those multi-tracks and just mixed it through good compressors and whatnots. But we already had a, we already had a mix that was adequate. You know what I mean? It was right. like Jay, Jay, I mean, it was Jay Perlman, who was our sound guy at that time, made all those demos. And, you know, Jay was like not convinced that we needed to do anything. He was like, you got you guys we made the record it's in, it, we did it in the basement and it's done you know yeah. to his mind he was like it's finished there's no reason right. to do anything further but and we there's we, less pressure i mean even matt alludes to the fact that like, oh it was wilder because we weren't on anyone's clock and we could just we had that basement freedom which well, yeah that it had that but it i mean the other thing that it had and that nobody ever wants to like nobody in a band that's like made records you know ever wants to, to really talk too much about the fact that it's like the other thing that it had is that it, for people inventing music in the moment rather than mm-hmm. remembering having invented music in the moment and trying to recreate that moment which is very, it's a very challenging thing. And this is what you get this kind of like de- what's called demoitis. And there was every reason that we might have demoitis because we demoed the living shit out of the, out of the record. You know what I mean? And everybody has their own take on it. As far as Matt was concerned, you could never demo anything enough 
And I think that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that you definitely could demo something too much. And it, you kind of, yeah. kind of uh, slowly becomes kind of your destination becomes a little cloudy and you, you develop like a list of favorite things from previous demos that you have to make sure you get into the final recording. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And suddenly it's like this, the ship comes into, into Harbor and it's got, it's not only got barnacles below the waterline, but it's got barnacles hanging off the main mast, and <laughs> and then the, the little the you know the the uh, whatever the lady on the front of the ship on the prow of the ship, she's yeah. got like barnacles for eyes, and it's just like <laughs> everything you ever thought of is like right. hanging on the thing. It's kind of tipping over a little bit, but it's with, like it's got every with, idea you ever thought of <laughs> with, with extra hand claps sleigh bells and vibra slaps yeah you know we it, it, i mean yeah that's that definitely was yeah. a quality yeah so so yeah so, we took we took that demo we tacked it on on the front because we loved it and because it worked and it was wild and, that, and it did kind of make this interesting intro and then the outro was also an edit piece that was all done as a as a, in a in a different session i mean did not happen in the moment that do, whole doo-wop thing at the end that was like uh that was recorded discreetly not you know at later. the studio but later yeah but you're 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 rubbing your bow on your strings i think in that beginning did you you did that in the demo no you guys are talking about that and you were kind of wondering what that was and actually that was um I did have a I did have a bow and I did use a bow uh, uh, quite a lot um, to on making harmonic effects and stuff. But that that thing that where it kind of is like sounds like it's ascending. That's like a symbol that I brought back from China, and I would uh, and so I'd like place that on the on the uh, neck of the bass and just kind of rub it around. It's more it's like it's like what you would do with a guitar pick, except I did it with like this brass chinese it wasn't a symbol it was like a like a clapper a clapper symbol that was used in beijing opera that i bought when i was over in china okay so you're just like kind of slowly rubbing that up the strings or yeah yeah okay that that's uh that sounds like it matches and then the will you be found this cool odd bass figure melodic and there's a broken drum beat Matt's doing a simple strum, and Dan is floating around with his with his electric guitar line. I, I mean, I love that one. That's one of my tops on the record. Do you have uh, recollections of the genesis of that, or, or I do have a little bit. Of, I do, I do. Um, well, I, I remember about the. I do remember about developing that bass part. I'm I, I'm not a big practicer. I mean, I practice sometimes. I don't know if I practice particularly well. I kind of like to imagine that i'm kind of best in the moment kind of developing stuff in a in a setting with other people and kind of working in that way but will you be found um i got a demo from matt and i had a fostex four track and i put i put that uh demo on two of the tracks on the cassette and then developed the bass part against that and 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 figured out how to do all that kind of double stop stuff mm. um kind of just quietly at home and um and then sent it back to matt and he was very taken with it 
Great. He was he was like really taken with it, and he said, "Great, perfect. This is great." Mm, a lot of fans probably thinking the same thing. And where are those tapes? I won't hear them. Yeah, I don't know. Does Matt keep track? Does Matt keep that stuff? You know, you move enough times, and stuff gets thrown out. But he saved the show where he's wearing just his underwear <laughs> that we have on the site now. He mentioned of like Matt's like six trip Shakespeare things he saved. One was luckily the pearl in the record store. The next one, me performing in just my underwear. I got to save that. I'll need that. Oh, this is Matt is not going to enjoy listening to this like and feel attitude of gratitude. Well, I, I does Matt? Know, I don't know. Doesn't I, Matt know that's on the site? I don't even know. I don't even. I, he's not. Matt is not, not uh, particularly a student of his past. I would say. But so, the, he may not know. But I mean, if we had it when you had a, a form like that, geez, why wouldn't you want to play in your underwear? He looked like a. <laughs> he looked like a superhero doll. He's like an Adonis. Right. Yeah, with this Prince Valiant haircut and his underpants. <laughs> <laughs> He, he was interested in kind of like exploring and yeah. uh, trying different stuff out and like he really did it he really kind of boldly went in that direction of of trying right. different stuff and some some other shit was pretty outrageous well, and you, you know Dan's, Dan's story about uh Matt dumping the marbles yeah right right yeah, I yeah. did hear that. Yeah, that that would be that's very. It, it certainly at that time that was really he was he was pushing he was pushing boundaries and he would up he would upset people doing all sorts of crazy shit. You know, mm-hmm. he would be he was quite nutty, especially when he was playing drums. Uh, and E. Brown, you know, he was he was kind of back home on an extended bender, and he was being just completely outrageous mm. uh, all the time. It's kind of hard to it's hard to square with who Matt is now, you know. It's like a little secret that lives inside him now, I guess. I, that that type of behavior. His his old on stage uh, comic bravado he used to speak with just as he's not there anymore. Yeah, I mean it's just not it's not who he is any longer. He's just not that's not him, you know. So yeah, well, we we were talking about Matt save whether or not he might have saved that four track demo. Tape. No, I'm Probably sure. I'm I'm sure not. I I mean, I do have a box of cassettes around somewhere, and I could, I should probably dig it dig it up and try and find it if I had a way to play it. <laughs> you know? Oh, four track. I mean, I, I, I just a cassette of any kind. Oh, well, it's, uh, mail it to John Robinson. <laughs> yeah, you got to get this stuff in the archive. I should go. I should go see if I can't unearth some of that stuff. If if right. if, if you think anybody would be interested, I probably could. May, I might be able to find some of that stuff around somewhere. Please. It's buried Please. deep, though. It's buried deep. Well, this is a deep dive. Yeah, I guess it is. I think we've gone off so so far astray here that no one is going to be able to pay attention. I just no hope way. you use your knife with uh, you know very liberally. Well, luckily, I have a sound tools system. I can uh, <laughs> edit this epic down. You know what's so interesting about that is like, 
nobody had that. I mean, that was like the first time we'd ever seen anything like that where the waveform was rendered as a visual sure. object on a computer screen. I mean, I know it sounds I it sounds so grampish to talk about it, but I mean, no one had we hadn't seen that before. It was not something that was available. If you were making an edit you had to kind of guess where that you had to kind of like find where those loud spikes were and stuff using your ears. It's not right, like now you, where you just like see the spike and the waveform and you make yep. your cut there. You know what I mean? Right. You have, you'd have the two reels and you'd have to find the, the spot and like shimmy it back and forth until you had your best guess. And then you did mark it with a white grease pencil underneath or something. And then pray. And then, yeah. But so, Okay, will you be found, Minty Groovemaster? Almost certainly, right? Do you think you played it on this whole thing? Because what 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 uh, fretless bases did you own during this? I think I had made the move to kind of full time Groovemaster at this point. Pretty much, I'm pretty sure that was probably. I love. I mean, what what happened was, um, I took my fretless Fender that I loved and played on, um, you know, all on the road for years that that fender precision and i took it in because it was starting to get troughs in the where the string lay on it and it, it there were there are a lot of places where it sounded great it was it was kind of there's certain things certain places on the neck it sounded great and other places it just would uh, notes would just die and so i had to take that um neck in and have it refinished and it just it, it just got ruined it never never sounded back. never sounded right um and and so i went i at that time i just went to the groove master and then i came to really love the groove master and i played it pretty much exclusively and the the i think i ended up putting a, like a fretted neck on that p bass although recently oh. i put the the P bass neck back on, then had somebody kind of set it up for me and it's back and it sounds great. It sounds great again. Hmm. So yeah, who knows? But yeah, that was a, that I think it was almost, I was almost all the minty green groove master. And then a, a couple of tunes I played the Hoffner. I would, I got, I acquired the Hoffner uh, from a music store up in uh, like Moorhead or Fargo or something like mm. that. I'd always kind of wanted one. Was it a violin shape? Yeah, yeah, it's classic yeah. kind of uh, Paul McCartney looking thing. And and uh, God, they're they're cool. So down my block, uh, Matt and I talk about how in his mind that's sort of one of his classic '50s sequence songs or do you well like do you like I, I, okay i'll tell you something about this song um dan and matt made a demo of this song where matt played drums and dan played bass and elaine and i were not involved they did it one afternoon after Ma elaine and i had left and to me that's the quintessential version of the song actually huh yeah and don't ask me where that is. I have no idea. It's it's on. It's got to be on one of the eight tracks somewhere. It's got to be somewhere. Although we may have recorded right over it and done the. It, it might have been. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't know. You know, we we varied it somewhat, but it's a good. It, that that version of the song was. I mean, it made it really obvious that it was a really great song. Actually, wow. One of my favorite ones to play live for sure. 
Now, Matt, Matt mentioning how he and Dan work together. Now I'm starting to listen to like all the songs that I can see. I have the straighter part and then the more the melodic shift. That is how a lot of stuff went down. And Matt Matt's description of it is kind of handing stuff off to Dan and then Dan kind of coming back with something that was kind of fully developed. Uh, very, very accurate. That Very accurate. He'd kind of come back and he'd have it be like, He'd have an idea, especially by that time, by by the time of making Lulu, he had a pretty clear idea about like, do this, you know, this this is what will work. You need to, you definitely need to lead with this note or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. And would you even demo the even like the the background, like the oh baby, like all that stuff, like away away, away away, yeah, all that stuff. We, <laughs> you know. Try doing that stuff live. That stuff was so hard to do. It was so hard to do those songs live with all the background vocals and well, the, you're playing the that syncop- yeah, and the syncopations of it. Really hard. It was. It really was. It was fun to kind of perfect that, you know, and to get to the point where you could execute all that stuff live. And now that I'm thinking of it, is this the only Trip Shakespeare song that has a key change? Maybe it is. Yeah, and it, I think it was kind of controversial too. Somebody will always think the keychain's corny. Yeah, but uh, I mean, it works. I I would agree. It yeah, makes I don't it know sound about like that. a cover. You know what I mean? It's like it's a classic-sounding song. It's really, it's really, it can be broken down to its just barest elements and still work. Well, we're all fan, we're all fans of like classic records and stuff, yeah. you know. Did anyone ever? Like publishing companies trying to get somebody to cover these things? Was that ever a thing? Nobody, two? No, I mean, they couldn't even make us a success, you know, come <laughs> on. I mean, it was just it was just a decision that could have worked out differently. I, I think Dan and Jake and I, especially Dan, learned from it. Um, at the time, when there were major labels and the publishing companies, if you're a new young band that everybody's excited about which it's hard to imagine that that was strip shakespeare at one point but it was first the label would come and sniff around and then the label would come with publishers and the publishers would come and they would want to sign you too and they would want to you know give you money for uh a 50 percent basically or 49 percent or whatever of your of your song writing you know we would have discussions around business uh, uh, like that and you know matt really he was the main writer so he was uh, kind of the controlling party of those conversations for whatever it's worth and his position at that time was like we're not going to sell the publishing because then we're giving away half of like the great thing that might happen with the music um, for one thing, it limited our, our means to kind of do accomplish things and do things, you know, cause a lot of people would take that publishing money and then they'd use it to extend their tour or whatever, you know, you know, make a more beautiful demo studio or, or whatever it was, you know what I mean? But we decided to forego that. I can understand the reasons for it, but in, in retrospect, if you get another party like a major music publisher and invested in you 
then you basically, you have another person who's very vested in your success at kind of advocating for you. Yeah, that's and, what I was thinking. Uh, yeah, and we didn't, ha we didn't have that. And I mean, you certainly, you know, I have always thought if you miss me is like, a, it's just waiting there for somebody yep. to do. And, Absolutely. you know, some, there's, there's a, there's some guy out there or girl, somebody who could sing that song and just destroy. It's such a beautiful tune. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that one for sure. Okay. Let's get back. Miss me fuel. Jill can drive. Matt regaled us with the story of the actual Jill. And did you make it that far? Did you hear that? Yeah, I did. I listened. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. listened to it. I, remember, I, I, I'm not one to let go of a moment of melancholy. I'll, I milked it, and and wept yes. big Good. soggy tears in the car. <laughs> well, Jill can drive. Is one that, uh, as a fan, I remember really vivid memories of hearing it the first time pre across the universe. The whole song was more in the line of the second half of this recorded version. It was more the electric bubbly version that started with that intro of those popping vocals. It was like whack-a-mole vocals. <laughs> and then, and then, so when I heard it on the record the first time, I'm like, oh, they kind of made just sort of a folky version of it. And honestly, I wasn't able to appreciate it in its full realized nature until very recently. Once I dissected it with Matt, and hearing how it starts acoustic, but then it ends up in that version with the electric version. And Matt and I were kind of puzzled at the process. It starts out acoustic, but then mm -hmm. it goes electric. But how did you lay it down the skeleton? Well, we did it. We I, I, I want to say that Dan had a lot to do with the decisions related to doing these edits. He was really interested in, in uh, editing. And he was kind of quite busy in that in that realm, and we did not that that aspect of the work we did not demo. That stuff actually all did happen at Pachyderm, kind of within that sound tool system. We didn't really have the means to do it, obviously, in this other realm. And so Dan kind of asked for the band for the band's forbearance to kind of try and and execute these edits. And so we we did we he, we did it as edit pieces. So we did that kind of the in introduction part. You know what that you know what that sound is? No, that's a sound. I mean, I probably shouldn't even say it. You didn't pay because we'll get sued. But it's a sample off a of Beatles record. That's tomorrow never knows. Um, it's either Tomorrow Never Knows or Flying or something like that. And no one's ever picked no one's ever picked it up. And we didn't credit it because we didn't even know about crediting stuff like that. But that is what that is. Well, maybe since it's not a musical moment, it's uh, more fair game, I guess. Yeah, or possibly. Probably acquired it from a sound effect bank. They pro they I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did. But did were you aware of the fact that it was, or did you suspect that it was, or did you? Well, I knew it was Beatlesque in a, in a flock of, it's a literally a flock of seagulls taking off. Yeah, it li and it me. literally is. It's not only Beatlesque; it's it's, it's literally taken right off of <laughs> one of their records. Um. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Boom, 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 boom. 
so this this section here, it's a new uh, it's landscape, a new, and it's and it is it's a live show that Jay right. Perlman recorded. And I, I say this as a devoted listener of this archive material to say those those vocals sound a bit too on to be totally live. I think it was both. It was okay. both. It starts out live, and then we we're we're kind of like singing along with the live oh, version okay. and then All it's right. and then it kind of cross fades yes into the studio and it goes from being like quite wet and yep. and atmospheric to yep. very very dry yes and that's us all, all around one microphone doing that live wow. part okay. and then it shifts gear into that kind of nutty j- jams section and that was also that was also edited together from like many, many takes of us kind of just playing together out in the main room at, at mm. Pachyderm, just kind of jamming. That's why that trumpet comes in, you know, we're just mm-hmm. kind of like doing stuff and trying stuff. So the whole idea of like, you know, that we didn't feel free or we're somehow feeling constraints and not really fully expressing ourselves except in the demo studio it's not really true. We were like, we were very free in the in in pachyderm. We were doing all sorts of nutty nutty crap. None of that stuff was stuff that we brought in from the basement. That was stuff that we were doing, and Justin was recording it. I mean, the thing that's that's really funny is we kind of told Justin what we wanted to do. He like bought in a hundred percent and showed up with literally a pallet full of two inch tape. So it was like I over a hundred reels of two inch tape, you that know, it's expensive. It shit is expensive, but that was like the big upfront cost for the, for the recording is like all that tape. So we could capture all our nonsense and then, and then edit it together. And that, in that jam thing in in the end of Jill, we, we recorded all this stuff and then, those recordings would get dumped onto like cassettes and we would take the cassettes home and then everybody would make their votes for their favorite parts of the jams. And then we'd create an edit out of that. And that was quite an, that was quite an involved process. It was a lot of listening, but what, that was one of the great things about the driving back and forth between Packard and the city you know, every it was a it was a an hour up and an hour back more or okay. less. So you'd have all this time to kind of go. You know, I remember g- driving a lot with Dan back and forth, and we'd listen to those, you know, listen to those versions and make our picks for the spots, and then see if Matt and Elaine were kind of in accord with the decisions about what the good bits were, and then. You know, Dan uh, would make the edit and make this stuff cohere, and then that's that's what we would use. He's quite ingenious. Matt seemed to not remember at all that there was any kind of digital editing thing happening. Oh, there was a ton of digital editing. I mean, really, there was there was a lot, and and more a lot more than that. And you know, I mean, yes, the, and this was true on every song, every song. Well, it was a lot of editing that took place and kind of putting together takes and so forth, for sure. Stuff we take for granted today. Uh, well, you guys, having it be such a new thing, you must have 
felt uh, like you had all this freedom all of a sudden. We were only just, I think we, I think by the time we finished, we knew what we could have done. We were not as excessive as we kind of could have been because we just, we're only just kind of familiarizing ourselves with that process, how that process worked. And that tool was totally, that sound tool thing was totally something totally new, you know? Was it sort of the embryonic version of Pro Tools? It was uh, it was a digit a digit design product I I think okay. their first the wow. kind of first the precursor I mean Patricia is another example where there was a lot of cutting you know to yeah. make the to make the guitar solo section work it was all right. pl- it was all played live mm-hmm. but then it was all cut together after the fact you know kind of choosing like the best parts you know. Right. And, and would you do that? Would you do the editing after it was fully mixed or would you? This is the thing that I'm a little confused about because I think what was done is that we, we mixed it and edited it. And that was like, that was the master take then in the sound tool system. There wasn't. You wouldn't bring that back in and then work on top of that again? No, because it was two tracks. It was right. just two tracks. It's not like Pro Tools. It wasn't like it wasn't like we could dump in twenty four tracks and do the cut in there. We could only you could only you had two tracks to work with. So I think Justin was making a mix, and then we were dumping that that those bits into Sound Tools, and then we were doing the cuts in Sound Tools, and then reassembling it and that was the master that has i i mean that's my recollection of how it mm-hmm. worked now if you can ever get justin on on the phone he might be able to educate you about that and i've I, i've given you his number so yes. you know if you decide you want to call him up and find out he he's a he's he's an awesome guy he probably would talk about it and he might have a better memory than me no i wish september was a longer month but uh, maybe we'll just have to call this international Lulu the album year. Dan Dan may Dan may remember things a little differently too. But we uh, we should pause for side B here. Call it a day. Yeah, it's it's already afternoon there. All right, the needle is in the runoff of side A now. Let's put that back in its cradle. Hope you enjoyed it. That was very enlightening, very fascinating to hear the differences of memory but the fuller picture is coming into focus great stuff okay support this podcast by purchasing loot for vagabonds from tripshakespeare.net or if you don't want to wear a t-shirt or get a beer cozy you can just make a little donation there on the cash flashers button and that's it okay well we're still going Happy International Lulu the Album Month. Happy anniversary, Lulu. And we will see you next time. Until then, take care of yourselves and each other. Bye.